Before beginning this recording, we want to share something. Death the Podcast was designed to be a series. This episode with Dr. B.J. Miller will be the last in the series and will mark the end of Death the Podcast. As the show has taught us, everything has its natural ending point. This is ours. We know it takes a special kind of person to choose to tune into a podcast on death, but as all of our guests have illustrated, the show has been every bit as much about life. Thanks for listening. I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. Our guest today is Dr. B.J. Miller. Dr. Miller is a hospice and palliative care specialist who sees patients at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Miller is assistant clinical professor of medicine at UCSF. He is also an honorary medical chair of the Dream Foundation. An accident during college claimed part of Dr. Miller's left arm and both of his legs below the knees. Dr. Miller's injury sparked in him a spiritual awakening, the results of which have left an indelible mark on the way those he's known and cared for have died, and perhaps more importantly, how they have lived. Here today to tell us all about it is B.J. Miller. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you. Nice to be here. I've heard you say that one of the tenets of Buddhism that resonates with you is that suffering is normal. How does that play out in the way you practice medicine? Hmm. Well, it, it helps, I think, a lot of people who are suffering part of the anguish is they feel alone and they remember their life before the illness or before some trauma or before something went wrong. And I think we romanticize our past in all sorts of ways. And then something comes along and yanks us out of what we thought was normal. And, uh, and then it's some process of, uh, trying to get back to this normal state. But ultimately, that doesn't really work very well. I mean, I suppose it works well when you have when your problem could be excised or truly corrected or truly fixed. But from a as, from a healthcare point of view, when we watch our patients move through illness, part of the realization and part of my work in clinic is to help people realize this is not a detour from your life. This, this is your life. This is not this is not an aberrancy. This is this is normal. Everyone gets sick, everyone suffers, everyone dies. And that's just a fact. You may, uh, and I don't recommend it, but you could compare people's suffering and say, well, people, some people suffer relatively more, and certainly people do. I cannot, the, the basics, uh, the staples of not having food or shelter, etc. Of course, that is a whole other layer. But one way or another, we all suffer. It seems to be a basic human condition. And I think of it as related to this this weird talent humans have, this thing called an imagination. So 
you can always imagine some world, some reality better than the one you have. And uh, I think that's part of how we suffer. That's part of the universal nature of suffering. So in answer to your question, I think just empirically speaking, you look around. I mean, I know people who are in perfect health, are rich as stink, and are pretty miserable souls. They may not qualify for depression or anxiety or some pathological state, but they're suffering. And by suffering, I just mean that they wish for something they didn't have. They wish for a reality that they don't have. And so, so I just think it's an observation that we all suffer. And I think it's very useful in my own life and in the life of my patients to remind us of that. Um, because going through the pain of symptoms, et cetera, of losing and of, of dying, et cetera, is very difficult, but it's not quite as difficult if you realize that we all do it, that you're part, this is part of the deal. And do you feel like that's something that when somebody is ill, that they can learn, even if it was something they maybe were totally disconnected from before illness? Absolutely. I think some of this takes time. I mean, it's, um, of course, there's so much situation dependence here. Um, but absolutely. I mean, I, I, I learned from my own experiences as a patient. I, I, I mean, if I had stopped and thought about this universal thought of suffering, the universal nature of it, I may have gotten to the same conclusion, but it would have been sort of intellectual. And I would have made the mistake of comparing my suffering to others and downplaying mine and overplaying others and making myself feel guilty for feeling bad. And I would, you know, I'd do all those things, those layers that we heap on ourselves. Um, but I, I came, I, I learned about this by feeling it, by sensing it, by going through a, a big loss. And it gave me um, the space and the permission to feel like, okay, now, now, now in this obvious way, in this way that is, that I could communicate to people around me, I have lost, I have struggled, I have suffered. And I found myself feeling strangely over time with limb loss, I found myself feeling more part of the world, not less. And there's a lot that goes into that, but that was just a very interesting, again, it was just an observation. Um, why would loss make me feel more normal, more part of the team? Um, but it did. And then we can talk about that for hours. But to answer your question, yeah, I, I see my patients go through this. I remember myself going through this, that this is something we can learn. And this is one of the ways loss and even death can teach us a lot, if you let it. Do you feel like for you that you tune more into what you have? Absolutely. That's a, one of the great gifts. So, you know, and, and that's related to grief. So I, you know, if you let yourself mourn and miss and, and truly angst and miss what you've lost, that's sort of step one. And it's a really important one. Um, I don't think we're very good at grieving in society here. I think, you know, if, if you're bummed out for more than a couple of weeks, we start calling you depressed or pathologizing that state. That's not fair. I mean, I think grief is also elemental and, and significant. And interestingly, grief is t totally related to love. If you if you don't love something that you just lost, well, big deal. You know, you wouldn't miss it. You know, you wouldn't grieve. And so, I mean, that comes up a lot with patients, helping folks, helping each other, helping us all understand the relationship between grief and love, I think is really interesting and really true and adds a sweetness to the agony that we go through. Um, but 
So grieving may be step one, letting yourself actually miss what you've lost. And then sort of the next step is, okay, well, what, what do I still have? What do I, what, do, what do I still have to work with in this life? As you start opening your eyes to that question um, and you start getting in tune with all that you still have, well, that's where you know your eyeballs open up again and smiles come back and then life seems full of potential again. And until we die, there's always something left. You know, there is always something to work with. And uh, I think that that's, um, so this is, your question points us to how loss can help us appreciate what we still have. And that is, that's something I'm so grateful to have the excuse to learn that lesson relatively young in life. Because if if I have a ho- one way of, stating my hope for us all in society is that we might move through these experiences together and by ourselves in such a way that it lends itself, it leads us to appreciating all that we still have. One of the great mm, sorrows I see at the bedside at the end of life very often is they only come to this realization when they're just about to die, when there's just a few days or hours or weeks in life. And it seems so sad to appreciate the life you've had only when you're about to lose it. You know, but I think I still fall in that trap all the time. We all do. I think losing something is what forces us to appreciate the thing we had. So if there's sort of a developmental goal by practicing these lessons and the losses that come our way through a lifetime before we die, before the big loss, I, the great hope would be that allows us to appreciate life while we have it, appreciate our bodies while we still have them, etc. Have you experienced significant loss since your accident? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I got injured when I was 19 and 10 years, yeah, 10 years later, uh, my sister died. I had one sibling. She's, um, Lisa was her name. She was older than me, uh, four years older than me and she, uh, killed herself. So, uh, that was an enormous loss. Um, and that was, I think, again, I think I was 29. Um, and so that'd be by far the biggest. Um, but of course there are many others. Uh, there's another daily losses. There are loss of friendships or loss of relationships. There's the loss of your wallet. There's a loss <laughs> of, you know, there's a loss of all sorts of stuff. It's happening all around us. It's happening every day. It's just a matter of shades of gray. It's a matter of uh, sort of some losses are very dramatic, but that kind of points me to something to to get clear. Like I, I highlight, I mentioned it earlier in our conversation. The hazard of comparing our sufferings. You know, I, I watch myself do that. I watch other people do it. Like you know, like your suffering isn't as big as mine, or feeling bad that my suffering isn't as big as yours looks like, or whatever else. I think it's really much more instructive for us all to realize that there's a generic nature to loss. And again, this basic math of wishing for something you don't have. I wish to not be in pain, but am. I wish to have four limbs, but I'm not. I wish my sister were alive, but she's not. I wish I had my car keys, but I can't find them. I mean, it's, you know, there's a basic mind bender around that. And I think we get in a lot of trouble when we try to size up our losses and compare and contrast our losses with each other. 
So yeah, I have had some sort of major losses since my since my accident, but I don't draw huge distinctions between those and the quote unquote smaller ones. Well, I always feel like when I try to compare my losses to somebody else's, that in a way, it's trying to hide from my own feelings about what they are for me. Yeah, um, it almost like distances me, gets me in my head instead of in my heart about it. Totally it's agree. Hard to, it's hard to just be there with loss. Yeah. Your own. I agree. This grieving thing is tricky for us. We're not, it's, it's a very, un, can be so uncomfortable because we don't, uh, we don't reward it in society. I think that probably makes it even more uncomfortable. But I totally agree that sizing up, that comparing, contrasting is like us spastically trying to tweak the dials of our pain. Um, sometimes it helps us dial it down, but I also watch, and I wonder if you have this experience. I watch myself and others dial up their pain. Like I just lost something. I feel horrible, but my feeling horrible isn't worthy. Uh, how dare I feel horrible when the guy over there lost even more in some, by some measure. It's weird. (laughs) It's strange. I understand when we do that kind of mental gymnastic to, to to ease our pain, but I I watch us as often use that mental stuff to make ourselves feel even worse. Sometimes it's just, we're fascinating, weird creatures. (laughs) That's all I can say. Well, absolutely. It like just starts the whole shame, shame spiral, which keeps you, keeps you so far away from yourself. Yeah. But I also get it because it, I think that grief can just feel like this bottomless pit. Yeah. And that it's very hard to know that you will be able to live through the feelings associated with loss. Yeah. I totally agree. And that's where I also think of this as that grief is a is a muscle. You need to exercise it. That you know, One way to reason to pay attention to our losses is exactly this reason. You can, you, I think you can get... This is probably the wrong language, but I think we'll get good at grieving. I think you can, it is something you, because just as you say, part of the salve of it is to remember, you're not going to feel like this forever. That this, you, you will feel better someday. Maybe not, you know, you'll feel different. It's not going to, you're not, it isn't bottomless. That loss won't go away. But you'll construct, you'll, you can fold it into your life. You can fold that loss into how you see yourself in the world, into, the, into your life so that it's a part of the picture. But you'll build all sorts of things up around it and you'll live on in other ways and you'll learn some things. And, and bottom line is, in fact, it's not bottomless. So in this way, if we get better at grieving and allowing each other to grieve, maybe we won't do these weird, torturous things like I watch us turn grief into, like you said, shame, which is particularly hard and harsh. Um, I watch people just get angry and bitter instead of letting themselves feel the sorrow. Um, and the, one of the hard parts, of, what, there's fallout from that, especially with this, with this anger route. Or take the shame route. Then you end up hating yourself for something outside your control. Like I feel, I feel bad, and now I'm going to hate myself for feeling bad. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> the anger one. So okay, feel sad, and now I'm going to be a jerk, and you know, and I'm going to lash out and be anger angry at this person or that person, or you know, and now I've just hurt somebody else. I mean, I watch us because we are unpracticed or uncomfortable with our grief. We end up unwittingly in this short-sighted way smearing our junk all over each other and all over the world and it's it's so unnecessary and it's extra sad 
it's extra sad and it is also a distraction like i yeah. i feel like particularly for people for family members who are losing somebody at end of life it's interesting to walk into a room and see the dynamics unfold and it's like everything's happening but what's actually happening yeah. is, is that what's incredibly painful is ha is happening yeah but instead there's lots of talk about lots of different things yeah it's like i get it but it also feels feels like it ends up being about what it's not about yeah yeah and i guess we should probably also give especially on the d word the death thing it is it is such a it is importantly different than losing your keys mm -hmm. <laughs> you know again there's this big generic piece of this on loss but boy death it's hard to fathom it's hard for us to sit and fathom an abyss it's 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 hard to fathom not existing you know it's 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 a really tricky stuff that we humans are stuck with this ability to to know we die to think about death before we die is is really tricky stuff so one is to give ourselves a little credit that i it, death may be i mean dying is no is knowable i believe that i'm around helping people die in some level or another we're hospice people that i work with a lot of people are around the dying process which is certainly part of living and that is knowable death non-existence <laughs> it's sort of like dark matter in space we don't know what the heck it's what is it i i don't know i don't know what death is i can't know that i can't tell you that i can be very i can walk up to its edge and get close to it but i can't know it at least as far as my, my own belief systems and my own experience and that that is that is importantly different so part of this i think is to uh, you know towards the end i think you and i both share of you know not shaming ourselves and each other for, for feeling bad and sad, etc. Um, one is to give ourselves credit. This death may be unknowable. And so, of course, we're going to do weird things around it. But to your point, I, I see this all the time in families who just aren't versed in processing or don't have an emotional sort of vocabulary. You watch people set all these little side fires to distract themselves and each other from the big fire. Um, whether it's complaining about the service in the hospital or, you know, or I don't know, whatever, you name it. You know, just finding other things that are more tangible, more knowable to aim your angst at. And it's, I can see why it happens. But again, you've just set a bunch of other fires. You know, you've spread fire all over the place. Um, and I, I, this is why I'm so excited for, you know, podcasts like yours and conversations like these so that we can begin to not do extra harm to each other and to ourselves. How do you know you've helped somebody at end of life? What do you do? The most direct answer is sometimes people just tell me. <laughs> you know, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice and direct and easy. And it happens, you know. You know, and, and, and I want to be clear. Right. Hospice as an industry, as a field, and palliative care, as a discipline, etc. These have been around for a long time. A lot of people been doing this work so this is this is old ancient subjects and there have been people thinking about it and working on it for years and um but if you i think you'd ask most anybody who works in the hospice field um they uh most of us are uh families i mean at heart most people have a real sweetness in them and it may take a while but a lot of times families circle back and thank us and tell us that we helped, you know, and there are a lot of hugs. So one way or another, 
families will often let us hospice folks know that we were helpful. Um, so that's one answer. And of course, too, you got your own gut. You know, you know, I think a part of doing hospice work well or any service work, you know, you feel if you're, if you're in tune, ultimately it's about a connection. And it's not just like the doctor or nurse or whatever doing things to somebody else or the psychologist doing something to something, you know, what, what you're exercising a skill set that, that is on top of your humanity, on top of you being a human being wading into tough stuff with another human being. And if you're in tune, if you do this work over time, I think you start to, you start to feel it. So People don't need to thank you. You you feel there's a resonance going on. Your gut's telling you that this is either helping or hurting because you'll feel it. Your empathy is is well wired and running well, and you you know, and I think that's where this sort of language gets tri- tri- tricky. I mean, it's not like caregivers are the ones just giving the care and the patients receiving the care, and it's not it's not so one sided. What really plays out is much more of a, re- a reciprocity. And so that, in that way, your own gut, your own sense it will tell you a lot about how well or poorly you're doing with a family. Well, and I imagine that kind of internal validation that you get knowing you connect with people, that that helps from burnout mm-hmm. and a career path that I imagine could have easy burnout. Yeah, it does. If you let it in, these are subtle cues if you're not careful, you're not just onto the next patient and you don't let yourself feel good. I mean, I think care, you know, the health professions are filled with people. This is one thing that's so interesting to me, you know, like physicians and others, nurses, everyone, uh, people in the health services. It's filled with people who uh, love to care for others, who are good at it, have devoted an incredible amount of time learning skills to do that, to be of service to others, to care about others. <laughs> What's really interesting to me is, receiving love being you know feeling good about that feeling the exchange yourself uh, receiving care yourself when you as a physician become a patient or whatever it is we're we're a lot of us aren't very good at it again those are sort of subtle cues and sometimes they feel contrary to the idea of service we may have learned in med school or whatever um that it's that actually it's, it's particularly true in medicine you know doctors who show the how committed they are by having no life outside of the hospital, by not sleeping, by not eating. Like that becomes part of the currency of how you show how devoted you are to your craft or your patients. I think we all know that doesn't work very well for very long. Um, but that's sort of the, the vernacular that we've, hopefully we're coming out of that a little bit. Um, if you as a care provider, again, language sucks here, but if you as the as a caregiver, as a person um, uh, you know, in service, you know, you, you need to get, you need to let yourself feel the love in return. You need to let yourself feel good about the work you're doing. And you need to let that part in too. You need to take something from your patients and families. Having been a patient, one of the hardest things, most demoralizing thing about being a patient was you're just lying in this bed and you're looking up at all these devoted people trying to help you live. And you're just, you know, you just feel lousy because you're not doing, you know, I'm just sitting there. People are up all night angsting about what to do to me, for me. And, it, you know, 
it's that's that's really tricky on the patient side. It doesn't feel very good to be just only receiving people's energy. One of the greatest things I think to do to prevent burnout and one of the greatest things you can do for your patients is to take something from that experience, learn something from that experience. I remember uh, anytime a, a nurse or a friend or a doc told, dared to mention to me or to shed a tear with me or to show some movement in them because of my experience, it made me feel like my, my, it, that this wasn't wasted, that I wasn't, um, that this was, that this pain was going to some good for somebody else somewhere. I mean, the, so in other words, the greatest thing some of my caregivers did for me was to take something from the experience, to learn something from the experience. Um, that's a real gift. So we, as we, we physicians, we clinicians, we psychologists, we need to make sure that we do that. We need to make sure we are fulfilled. We let ourselves be fulfilled and to feel the goodness of the work we're doing. And even when our words don't land well, just remembering that we actually really, really mean well, and we really, really are trying. So in these ways, I do think, yes, this is a major way to beat back burnout. And burnout is absolutely an issue in, in palliative care and hospice and oncology and all sorts of fields. And I would imagine it is in psychology, too. So, um, yeah, it's a big issue. Any Anytime you're in a field that's built on empathy uh, and compassion, you are absorbing disproportionate amounts of suffering of others. You're putting yourself in the way of other people's suffering. And if you're good at your job, you're going to feel that suffering. And so you're going to walk away at the end of the day with piles of other people's suffering on your shoulders. So you, you've got to find a way to make some good from that and feel good about that. Well, and I like what you're saying about it not being unidirectional, like the, you know, the provider, whoever that is, is the one giving only that the mutuality and caring for somebody, I mean, it's, I, I feel like it's a gift to be with people and yeah. in moments that if I didn't do what I did, I, w I wouldn't get to witness. Yeah. Um, and that that fills a tank. It's, it also, it can be very depleting, but most important <laughs> things are both things. Yeah. Hard and wonderful. Yeah. I totally agree. So you've you've spoken to the importance of medicine shifting to the person rather than the disease. Hmm. How do you navigate the challenges you face in the current medical system to focus on the person? Yeah, I really believe that medical science, especially medicine, you know, medical science has really since the mid 19th century really been driven by technology, by innovation by pushing investigation into the disease. And the supposition was, well, disease is what causes suffering. Disease is what hurts people. So let's combat the disease and people won't hurt. So, okay, well, yeah, to some degree, there's some truth in that. And there have been amazing advances in the last 150 years, thanks to this very mentality and the scientific method that goes along with it. So thank you. Amen. I'm alive because of that approach. Some good stuff in there. Uh, and I think my field, palliative care, comes along in the last, I don't know how many, dozens of years, or the last 40 years, 30 years, to as as something of a, as a corrective, as uh, to say, well, mm -hmm, yeah, that's true. So that's great. Focus on the disease and, and that work, to what degree you can cure and you can actually fix something, awesome. Where medicine has really fallen down is where people are beyond the cure. Then you hear the, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. In other words, like, good luck out there. Uh, sorry, we can't cure you. I don't know where, you know, you know, 
see ya. <laughs> you know, that's this horrible moment of abandonment. And that hurts. If you talk to a lot of families and patients, that hurts in some ways way more than the disease, than the illness. So this is what hospice work has taught the world and in the, in the field of palliative care has come along to say, well, hey, you don't need, why, why do we wait until we're dying to have this approach to care? Why do we wait so long in the, in the arc of illness until we care in this way about people? Caring about people is not a consolation prize because we couldn't fix them. Um, and as palliative care has developed and moved farther and farther upstream and, you know, and sure, palliative care helps people through to the end of life, but palliative care is just around the, is, is organized around suffering. You don't have to be dying anytime soon. So um, in this way, I think palliative care is trying to fill a gap that opened up because of this approach to, of, to medicine that it was around the disease and that the person was somehow incidental to that. Um, now we're, I think, coming to terms with that, that approach works, but only to a certain point, And that, that approach also hurts a lot of people unnecessarily. And as, and as much and as vaunted as medicine is, and as a lot of, and as a lot of unnecessary kudos I get just because I'm a doctor, undeserved kudos as I get just because I'm a doctor, I'm also aware that, um, medicine's also kind of a little embattled. Um, uh, I see a lot of people who have a lot of distrust about medicine and I don't really blame them. And I think what I'm getting at is this is a design flaw. I think you and I both know that the health professions are filled with people who really care, have, <laughs> have trained their tails off for years for the privilege to do what we're talking about. This is not a field that attracts a lot of evil, <laughs> you know, yet the system un uh, uh, unfortunately ends up causing harm a lot of the way, in, a, in a lot of ways and, and creating suffering in a lot of ways, which is such a shame. This is a long-winded preamble to say this is why I feel, I and others feel, that we have a design flaw. It's not that people in medicine are hurting people on purpose. It's that there's something bad in the setup and the design of the system and how we think about this. And for my money, it gets us right to this very elegant point that the system is unfortunately oriented around disease instead of the people having the disease. And if we made that switch, there wouldn't be this false divide between social services and medical services, between spirituality and science. You know, we would, those are all conventions that we've kind of sliced and diced, but the experience of living and dying, that is, that is inherently holistic. That is inherently multidisciplinary and it's inherently way more fascinating than a disease. So I, I think I and palliative care as a field are, 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 are working on behalf of this frame shift. For this shift to happen, it has to work through a couple of ways. One is clinical education. So the way we train doctors, the way we train nurses, social workers, chaplains, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it, physical therapists, anyone in the health services, we need to begin early on to uh, make it clear like, yes, yes, you need to learn this sort of the science of your field. But we also have to be really good right from the start of reminding them that the science is meant to serve humanity. Science isn't an end of itself. Health isn't even an end of itself. All that stuff is on behalf of humanity, I think. And if it's divorced from humanity, then you get into a lot of trouble. Science is interesting, but as an inwardly sort of self-serving pursuit, it's it could be dangerous. So reminding ourselves the moment we begin our training that this is on behalf and service to humanity to the full experience of what it means to be alive and how anguishing it is to die 
that needs to be baked in from the start. And I don't care if you're going into surgery or whatever field you're going into, reminding yourself that your skill set and your work is on behalf of this individual, on behalf of humanity is key. So baking in the humanities, philosophy, religion, all the things that go into the human experience, introducing those things alongside uh, biology and chemistry and all the other things that we study in medical school. So, um, and then in, in more pointedly teaching uh, physicians and other clinicians how to communicate. Um, so much is lost in translation. Lots of good work is being done, but if you can't communicate with your patient about the experience of loss, if you can't sit with your patient uh, after your surgical procedure has failed, um, then you're really in the the clinician suffers and the patient suffers unnecessarily. So these are a few ways that sort of clinical education needs to change. Step two is uh, in no particular order here, but a, a second layer here of this frame shift would be uh, engaging the public in a different way. So it's not just patients show up and shut up and just let doctors and clinicians do their thing. That doesn't work very well. People, the, the society we're trying to serve needs to be engaged, needs to tell us what's important to them. So to help us make decisions about as we go down decision trees of treatments and side effects and trade-offs we might make, we need to hear from the people we're trying to serve uh, and they need to understand what we're trying to do. There needs to be way more public engagement for this sh frame shift to happen. Uh, third piece is policy. So how we reimburse uh, clinical work um, needs to radically shift. We need to incent. Uh, we need to be careful about what we incentivize. Um, that's a huge piece of this puzzle. Uh, and then, and then the last piece is sort of infrastructure. We need to we need to create communication systems, technology systems, uh, bricks and mortar, hospital facilities, hospice houses, nursing homes, daycare facilities, home care programs. The infrastructure needs to suit this purpose as well. So. A hospital, you know, looks as it does because it's there to house the technical equipment to, to combat the disease. You as the patient are there to as, as, a, as, a, as the throughput. Like we just kind of get you moving, sort of an assembly line. And that's efficient and that makes sense. But uh, if we remind ourselves that we're to serve humanity, hospitals might look a little different. They may smell and feel a little different. But maybe probably not that much. Acute care is one thing. When we get into chronic care and stuff outside the hospital, the nursing homes, the subacute care, or hospice houses, etc. Boy, I would love to see the architects, the great architects in the world, get involved here. I mean, if you just think about how environment affects your experience. So when you have time, you know, many of us go to the beautiful into the woods or some where beauty is abounding or we go to museums. These structures affect our experience. And so far, none of that stuff has really made its way into the healthcare system, which is a shame. So how does that happen, that change and focus on environment and focus on, um, I mean, it just seems like a, such a huge system. I love everything you're saying, but I'm thinking but in my how, head, how, how does it? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. And I don't know. I mean, the short answer is I don't really know. I think the start is talking about it. And this is why I like to point back to this, the, the design brief. If going forward, if, if everyone could agree that healthcare is about treating the person, not the disease, then all of our brains and orientation could shift. And, and I, over time, I believe these changes would be possible. If we don't agree that that's the purpose of healthcare as a system, then we're just going to keep 
will be at odds and will keep perpetuating the same junk. So, I mean, one of the one answer to your question is that conversations like ours, just we got to beat this drum. And and especially when patients, what's very interesting, I love when I'll meet healthcare administrators, um, you know, folks behind the scenes pulling levers, politicians who, you know, if you're talking about these things recreationally or just as an intellectual kind of medical history kind of stuff, it's interesting. But boy, does it, it really come home when I, I can't tell you the number of times where I've talked to folks high up in, in administrative kind of work. Who will pull me aside and say, you know, thank you for talking about this. I, you know, I hadn't realized until mom. I just had my, my my mom just died, and I had no idea what how grueling that experience was in the hospital and how confusing it was, etc. Another piece to strategically is to keep an eye out when these experiences happen to ourselves and people close to us, especially within the health system, that we we go to them, we talk to them, we help them process that experience, we work from that. We we begin to collate our collective experiences as proof points of why this needs to change or how it might change. And too often, back to grief, those healthcare administrators may feel embarrassed about their experience. And now, gosh, they realize that they're working in a hospital that doesn't serve their own mom very well. They may just kind of shut that down if they're not really encouraged to, and supported to think about it and talk about it. So one of all of us need to get better at going to the grief and loss that's right in front of us, whether it's our friends or family or employees or whatever it is. Take advantage of these moments to, to learn some lessons. Um, so, and then there, I think there needs to be uh, a consumer uh, uh, orientation. Um, you know, it'd be great to have uh a consumer bureau of some kind in healthcare so that there's a patient's voice is really, uh, is, is collected, is honored. Um, patients need to be weighing into how the system functions right now. Patients really aren't (laughs) much to say about it. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. There again, makes perfect sense. If you're focused on disease, well, the patients don't know much about disease. The doctors know about the disease. So why would we ask the patients about it? But if we believe that we're actually here to serve patients and serve people, well, then all of a sudden the patients and families experience have a ton of value just because of that frame shift. So in this way, this I think could play out. That's why I think we need to sort of get to the root cause and the root cause is this this design flaw. One of the things we've heard guests say on the show quite a bit is that the process of dying is way more scary than death itself. what can you say to be of comfort to someone who's afraid of dying? Hmm. I think that's true, by the way. I think most people are afraid. When they say they're afraid of death, I think most people are saying they're afraid of the suffering they imagine is, is part of the dying process. Um, so so I think that's true. And um, this is where uh, there's so much room for reassurance. Thanks to fields like hospice, palliative care, and just sensitive clinicians, um, in other fields, we actually know a lot. You know, Ira Bayak, friend and colleague, has written a bunch of books, one being The Best Care Possible. You know, and he, in that book, he lays out if only people knew, if only the consumer of healthcare knew how much better things could be if we just did the things we know how to do well pain management, symptom management, spiritual and emotional support. Um, the bottom line is dying doesn't need to hurt so much. It ain't going to be easy. Um, but, you know, 
when I think about fa- families at a place like Zen Hospice where I worked for a while or in my clinic, when it comes down to it, a lot of people, thanks to hospice, uh, die pretty comfortably, you know? And okay, it's, it's, it's sad. There's sorrow. But um, in terms of their own comfort, you don't need to suffer. It is not a necessary piece of this puzzle. Um, there's so much that can be done if we just did the things we already know how to do. Um, you, you do not need to suffer at the end of life. And part of that picture would be encouraging people to invoke hospice earlier than they do, to welcome hospice into the mix earlier than they do. Um, that's a big piece of this. I'm just thinking about what we were talking about earlier, that suffering is, is a necessary part of life, but it doesn't sound like it's necessarily a necessary part of death. No. And I, this is where it's really important to also draw the distinction between uh, necessary and unnecessary suffering. Mm-hmm. So, right, because, right, this is so dang interesting, right? So suffering, as you and I would say, I think I think we both admit that a lot of good come from suffering. I mean, I what a boring life it would be, how out of tune you would feel if you never suffered. You would, you know, you would, you'd be like an alien. There would be, you would not have nothing in common with people. Uh, And there would be no excuse to learn a bunch of lessons. It is, suffering is just the way we figure stuff out. And I, so it's vital. Um, So I wouldn't even outlaw suffering if I could. You know, I mean, that may sound sadistic. I don't mean it that way. Um, but I want to tease out. So loss, death, hard. Um, reconciling the, your imagination with reality, hard. You know, you're going to suffer if you're alive on this planet for more than a few hours. So part of the deal. Okay, fine. Let's get good at accommodating that fact of life. Let's if not welcome it into our world, it lets it look at least uh, appreciate what it does for us. Now, that's that's natural suffering, just going to come. Now, the, the stuff I'm trying to shave off would be the unnecessary suffering bits. The inhumane health care system, as we've described it. Uh, the... Uh, policies that are in places of employment that don't give us any space to grieve or um, the way we're unkind to each other when the, when we're sick or weakened, the way we don't deal with vulnerability well as human beings, that we're unpracticed at it. We don't, we don't um, as a young society here in America, we don't uh, honor it. Um, so it's the cruelty, these layers, the shaming, the guilt-making, um, that's the stuff that I, that's the stuff that needs to be rooted up, rooted out. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of suffering. I think we can get rid of those unnecessary layers of suffering. And that would make an enormous difference in this world right there. I like that. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> How would you design your own death? So, yeah. So, it's so interesting. Well, hospice is filled with people. Not filled. That's dramatic. No. There are people. A lot of times it's not uncommon for folks who are in this field, who are around this subject a lot, to accidentally get to seduced into thinking that when it's their time, oh, well, you know, now because I've worked around death a lot, I, I'll, when I'm, it's my time to die, it's going to be fine. I'll be fine. Uh, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes a lot of uh, a lot of 
clinicians and hospice docs in particular are, are sort of perversely freaked out by their own death. And I think the problem there is that, you, like we said earlier, death is not knowable. And as much as we might empathize and be near others who are dying, how you or I are going to feel when it's our time you always got to build in this little, this variable, this coefficient, this, uh, this, this piece of the puzzle as I, as, as you fill out an advanced directive, as, as you plan for your own death, make sure you build in a little variable that it says, I don't know exactly until I'm there. So I want to give myself a little wiggle room in my planning. And I want to answer your question is to plan for a piece that you can't plan for. Now with that out of the way, um, you know, I think for me personally, um, I I will use my own illness and my dying process to um, really upload and uptick the things that are really, uh, really most important to me in a sort of a direct experiential way. So this is where I love thinking about aesthetics and the world of the senses. You don't need time for them. You don't need intellect for them. Um, feeling the sun on my skin, uh, the, seeing nature, seeing friends, playing with my dog. These are things that, that are riding my, bi- my bicycle or my motorcycle. These are things that just feel wonderful in real time. So, so in terms of answering your question, planning for my own death, um, one would be to make sure to the degree I can is that I have access to the sensory world, the aesthetic world. And that's one reason I would like to stay out of hospitals if I can. Hospitals don't really reward the senses, um, but that that will be very important to me. As I'm trying to say goodbye to my material existence, I would like to really delight in that material existence while I can. So that points me to how I might spend my time and more importantly, where I might spend my time when I'm dying. And it's probably not going to be in a hospital if I can help it for these reasons. Um, so another thing to do, of course, is fill out my advanced directive and think through when I'm gone, who gets what, um, and make sure to address my code status. Like, do I want to be resuscitated when I die? I don't think so. Probably not. In fact, I know so. I, I know. I, I know I don't. So making those kinds of wishes clear, I think, is really important too. Um, so th- those are some of the ways. Um, but again, I think the most interesting piece there is to build in this this piece of the puzzle that you just can't know till you're standing at the edge of your own horizon. I don't know how I'm going to feel. I don't know how I'm going to... So building in the wiggle room a little bit. It's hard to know what's unknowable. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah, we can empathize and that gets us far, but boy, there's a lot of deference that needs to be given to that person who's actually doing the dying. What keeps you up at night? That's a good question. All sorts of things. For all my talk of perspective making and meaning making and blah, 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 blah. I, you know, I, I sure do watch myself angst over all little stuff, dumb stuff all the time. Um, somehow drilled into me, for better and worse, by my family. Um, was I, My parents didn't put a lot of pressure on me to achieve, you know, in some objective way. They talked very interestingly about me fulfilling my potential. That was very helpful in a lot of ways, but it's also a little devilish because what the hell's my potential? I don't know. When is it? When have I done enough? Like when? When could I? When I? When have I done all I could? When? When have I made as good a use as I can of what I have? That's pretty tricky. What makes me uh, anxious during the day is, am I really making best use of what I have? Am I really learning all the lessons I'm supposed to be learning? What did I, what am I missing? You know, where did I squint? 
who did, whose feelings did I just unnecessarily hurt? Um, I spent a fair amount of time thinking thinking about those kinds of things. In some way, it's constructive. It keeps your eyes open, keeps you looking, keeps you learning, keeps you trying. But I also have a hard time dialing that back. Sometimes I will uh, angst over stuff that I've already learned the lesson. I've already said I'm sorry. It's okay. But I'll sit there and still feel pretty bad about it for a while. And I will, um, you know, for me developmentally, like I haven't learned the lesson that I can't be multiple places at once. I can't do everything. I still want, I still want too much from my life sometimes, you know, uh, I catch myself doing that a lot. Have I fulfilled my potential? Have I done all I can, learned all I can? That kind of stuff keeps me up, keeps me a little mildly neurotic all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you talked earlier about having access to the sensory world when you die. Can you say more about that? I love thinking about aesthetics. I love thinking about their therapeutic potential. Um, and I guess they also, I guess where I'm going to, so we've mentioned that, but I, I think that's elemental. I don't think that's decadent stuff. I think about my art, you think about art is not necessary. It's in a museum. You get to it if you have time or if you have a certain social class. Well, BS. I mean, we play with our, that we, we, we don't, you don't, it's not a matter of being rich or poor to have a sensory experience. Um, so that's one point. But what also, where that also points me to is, yeah, yeah humans are really, we're really we're meaning making machines. We can we can invent and in, in, invoke and invest meaning in just about anything. It's kind of how we make sense and of our lives and move through life. I guess I want my last plug here is to put in a plug for meaninglessness, for purposelessness, for silliness, for you know the aesthetic domain because of its direct nature. It's not necessarily on behalf of something. It's not leveraged towards something. It just is what it is in the moment. I think that's so potent and you may use that to make meaning from over time. You can string together and quilt together a story, a narrative that makes meaning from it, but you don't need to. Um, there is something just remarkable about feeling anything irrespective of whether or not it has meaning. So if this life, if uh, if our uh, spinning around this sun and this solar system, if it's a part of some greater meaning, cool, great. If it is absolutely meaninglessness, fine by me too. I mean, and I, I just like to push for a worldview that incorporates the absence of meaning. And I watch people suffer at the end of life because they maybe didn't, uh, as they reflect on it, they may have not led a meaningful life. They may have not achieved something. They may not have served some great purpose. And I'm all for purpose and meaning, etc. But there again, even people who have achieved a gazillion things, that stuff will fade. I mean, I like taking a sort of geologic time, sense of time. I don't know. Think of whoever made the greatest contribution to humanity. That stuff will be forgotten eventually too. The greatest buildings will be dust at some point. I mean, I just so sure meaning, purpose, beautiful, but don't get too hung up on it. Just delight in 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 the weird, wacky nature of being alive while you still are and feeling anything at all. Like dogs are really good at that. Yep, that's one thing I learned from my dog <laughs> every day. Yeah. Well, and and what you're saying, I hear like being when you're when you're connected to your senses, you're in your body and not oh, yeah. in your head. Yeah. Yeah. 
and you can use that body for good purpose. And I want, I want to, and I hope we all do, but that's just part of the game. Yeah. Well, Dr. BJ Miller, I think you're doing a lot. You have done a lot. You're doing a lot. I know that might keep you up at night, but from an outsider perspective, I'm so appreciative of, of your time and your work. Thank you. <laughs> that was so well timed. <laughs> well, thank you. It's really it's been fun talking to you, and thanks for doing what you're doing. This oh. is you're spreading the word. Oh, it's a, it's such a pleasure to do what we do. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Elfont, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Are you looking for a rewarding career that pays well and offers vacation days from the start? If so, then drive for Penske. Penske is hiring safe, experienced truck drivers to operate their fleet of more than 300,000 vehicles for dedicated routes. Join our Penske team and drive the difference. Talk to a Penske representative today to find out what jobs are available in your area and apply now. Call 855-CDL-PENSKE. That's 855-235-7367.